your choir. What a great um, time we've already had in worship with baptism, and um, congratulations to all of you men who uh, completed the semester of uh, radical mentoring and what a difference that's made in the lives of so many in our church. And if you're visiting with us uh, this morning, we're in a series we started uh, a few weeks ago, um, did the first message, and it's called Overcoming the Wounds of Life. And so today we'll be in the second sermon related to that. Father, bless now your word to our hearts and our lives. And I just pray, Lord, that um, as is needed in lives that are hurting or have been hurt, either in this room or watching online, uh, Lord, that um, you would begin through this series to bring healing and release. And Lord, um, a way for people to move forward who may feel like they are stuck at a place in life where you do not intend for them to be. Thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us. And we pray now, Father, that you would just give us ears to hear, hearts to receive from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Et tu, Brute, is perhaps one of the world's most familiar phrases related to the experience of betrayal. <clears throat> it means, and you, Brutus? Or perhaps we can hear the meaning better in translations like, you too, Brutus? Or also you, Brutus? And the phrase comes from Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, where the Roman dictator utters these words as he's being assassinated. And in the moment when they're stabbing him with the knives, he recognizes his friend, Marcus Junius Brutus, as one of the assassins. And thus he asks, and you too, Brutus. And even today, this phrase is now used to refer to the unexpected betrayal by a friend. Betrayal is one of the painful things that can take place or that can happen to us in this life. It can arise from various sources, take on various forms, and when we experience it, it can wound us deeply. And we find a number of examples of it in Scripture, and we find, I think, in the Word of God, some truth to help us overcome the wound of betrayal, and that will be our focus this morning in this series, Overcoming the Wounds of Life. This is the wound of betrayal. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read out of two passages first, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26, and then in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Matthew 26, beginning, beginning in verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would, have been, it would be better for him if he had not been born. And then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where we face, or come to another person who is facing death, and that would be Paul. He's in prison. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, <clears throat> He says, Alexander, the metal worker, 
did me a great deal of harm. 2 Timothy 4, 14. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Jesus knew what it was to experience betrayal. He was betrayed by Judas to the authorities, but he was also betrayed by the other 11, if you think about it, who ran away, and some of them denied that they even knew him. Being betrayed at the end of life would certainly be hard for Jesus and for Julius Caesar. And you remember in Peter's denial, at one point the text says, and Jesus looked straight at him. Can you imagine the wound in Jesus' heart, but also what that did to Peter? But being betrayed at the end of life is hard, but, but it is also, I think, very difficult when life goes on, and we have to continue to process that wound, continue perhaps to see the people who betrayed us and deal with the fallout that it brings to our lives and to those around us. The wound inflicted by betrayal may have come to you, some of you in this room among other things uh, through by being cheated on by a spouse or by a girlfriend or boyfriend or being undermined by a workmate or employee or let down when somebody should have defended you or stood up for you and they did not or cheated by a business partner and left in financial straits or financially hurt by secret actions like running up credit without your family's knowledge And then they feel betrayed when they find out. Or politically, you're betrayed by somebody that you thought was with you and on your side, and you find out in the heat of battle that they were not. I think uh, Mel Gibson's look in Braveheart when he was playing William Wallace, and he was on the field of battle, and you remember when the Scottish nobles turned against him, didn't fight with him, and you see in his eyes a great actor, I think, in this point here, with the tear in his eye, of feeling the great betrayal that took place on the battlefield. And William Wallace was ultimately truly betrayed and handed over to the British, and, uh, and he was killed violently. You know, when people are betrayed, it can lead to not trusting others. And maybe you've been betrayed, and you have a hard time trusting people now. It can lead to bitterness. It can lead to stagnation and defeat in life. People just get stuck in life or hung up on what has happened to them in the past. And for us, though, as followers of Jesus, we have to find our way forward. And as I said in the first message, that path is going to have to be somewhat person-specific, individual. We all go through things in different ways, and so each of us, as we work through things, may have you know, different aspects of how it unfolds in our lives. But whatever way we get through it, we must get through it and come out on the other side, faithfully serving the Lord Jesus and trusting Him. And so today as we talk about about the wound of betrayal, I think there's some common truths we must hold on to 
and some steps we need to take if we wish to overcome this wound, and there are three I want to share with you this morning. So first of all, if we're going to overcome the wound of betrayal, we've got to remember the principle of forgiveness. And this truth and this principle is going to come up a lot in this series as we talk about working through things in life. When we're wounded in this life by betrayal, if we're really going to move beyond it, we've got to come to the point of forgiveness. And you remember the first message we looked at Joseph. He was betrayed by his brothers. He spent 17 years of his life as a slave or a prisoner related to this betrayal. Joseph, who had to face his brothers again years after their betrayal, and he, he has to look at them in the eye and, and face what they did to him. And they're unrepentant in the beginning. And yet, he chose to forgive them for what they had done. Or think about the Apostle Paul, as we read in 2 Timothy 4, when he says, I was betrayed by the whole Christian community. So when I came to my first defense, my preliminary hearing, my life is on the line. He said, not one Christian stood with me. Nobody came to my defense. Everyone abandoned him. But you hear him say, may it not be held against them. And so he forgave as well. Jesus forgave and restored Peter after he denied him, and he restored all of the 11 disciples. And you and I are called by God to be great forgivers of those who treat us wrongly, even those who may betray us. We say the Lord's Prayer is our framework prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, say it with me. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and I'm glad y'all know that. <clears throat> forgive us of our sins, our trespasses, as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, forgiveness is not easy. It's really not fair if you think about forgiveness. It's not fair. I mean, God, if he gave us what was fair, he would just send us to hell. Forgiveness is costly. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said forgiveness is easy until we have something to forgive. No, forgiveness is hard because, as one writer put it, behind every act of forgiveness lies a wound of betrayal, and the pain of being betrayed does not easily fade away. Yet, while forgiveness is hard, to not forgive is ultimately harder on us. Forgiveness is an act that releases power in us to begin to move forward again. And so today, if this is striking a nerve with you, that someone has wounded you and you have not forgiven, I want you to know that um, don't hear this as chiding you, but hear this as encouraging you that if you want to be released and begin to move forward, the initial step that it's going to take to find the power to keep moving forward is this step of forgiveness. And so it's imperative that we forgive because of of a number of reasons. First, it's, it's the first step to healing of our heart wounds. The Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt said, the only remedy for the inevitability of history is forgiveness. Otherwise, we remain trapped, as she put it, in the predicament of irreversibility. That is, if we don't forgive, we remain locked in the past, and it's irreversible. Forgiveness is a way to begin to move in a new direction in life. Or Philip Yancey put it this way, that if we don't forgive, we get locked in the past or imprisoned in the past, and we lock out the potential for changes in our lives. 
And Lewis Smedes, along the same line, said, the first and often only person to be healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiveness. And so when we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free, he said, and then discovered that the prisoner we set free was us. And so it's imperative that we think about forgiveness because it gives us power and it begins to set us free and it begins to reverse directions in relationship to where we have been. It's also imperative that we forgive because it is an act of faith that helps me trust God in a fresh way so that I can trust him in the other steps that may come in the future as I finally go through this time of, of healing. You know, healing is a process in which we have to keep coming to the Lord and walking in obedience. And if we can take this first step by trusting God to forgive, then we're building a foundation of faith to keep going. So, for instance, when we forgive, we begin to be released from the emotional wound of resentment that often festers and clouds everything else. Do you have resentment? You know what the word resentment means? It means to feel again. Literally, that's what it means, to feel again. Resentment relives over and over again the wound. It picks the scab to be very graphic. And thus, healing cannot come. You keep scratching the scab away. Resentment. But if you forgive, you begin to change that direction, and you trust the Lord in a fresh way to begin to help you move in that other direction and to take the next steps in life. It, it provides a way out of the wound. And then forgiveness is so important because <clears throat> biblically and the theologically, if we have been forgiven so much, and we have, how can we withhold forgiveness? To not forgive is to show we have not grasped God's grace to us. Someone shared the story about Fred Craddock, a, a well-known preacher, and he was preaching a sermon on the prodigal son, who in essence, you remember, he betrayed his father. Because he came to his father and said, I want my half of the estate right now. And so in essence, he was saying, I wish you were dead. And his father gives him that part of the estate, and he goes, you know, into a far country. And he spends it all. And when he becomes destitute, he makes his way back home to beg forgiveness. And you remember the story, the father runs out to greet him, something a Near Eastern man of, of power and wealth would not do. Right? He, he humbles himself in this way. A great picture of our God's heart who's willing to be embarrassed in a sense to save somebody like me. The father runs to greet him and he puts a ring on his finger and he kills the fattened calf to celebrate his son who was lost who's come home. You remember the story? But Fred Craddock, when he was preaching the message, he put a twist on the story. He told it differently. He told it in the way that when uh, the prodigal came home, the father put his ring on the older son who had stayed. He killed the fattened calf, and he had a celebration for the son who never left and who was faithful. And he honored him for his years of, of faithfulness. And uh, as he was preaching that, some woman stood up in the back of the sanctuary and yelled out, that's the way it should have been written. <laughs> because... It's easy to think about that, right, as opposed to really forgiving, that open forgiveness. But you see, grace then does not come naturally to us. 
But when we think about how God has forgiven the inexcusable in us, as C.S. Lewis put it, how can we withhold forgiveness from anyone else? And you know the word forgiveness contains the word give, doesn't it? As the word pardon contains the word donum or gift. It is grace given as God gave us grace when we came running to him for forgiveness. He put the ring on our hands, right? And the robe on our back. And he killed the fattened calf. He celebrated. The Bible says that the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner comes to the Lord in repentance. A party is thrown in heaven. Think about when you got saved. Your forgiveness in mind cost the very life of the Son of God. Bearing the weight of our sin, the wrath of the Father that I deserve. But when I came to him in repentance and faith, the Bible says that the angels rejoice. Think about your name, the party being thrown for you in heaven, your name on the banner as everybody celebrates all of heaven, your life that has been redeemed. God gives all of that to us as, as a great gift. He forgives us. He sets the example for us that the way to heal the universe and the way to heal ourselves is through forgiveness. And so, if we're going to overcome the wound of betrayal, forgiveness plays a key role in our lives in helping us overcome wounds in life like that one. But the next is a matter that I, I think confuses people when it comes to being wounded by betrayal and, and moving beyond it. The next thing I want to talk about is related to justice. Am I, when I get hurt by betrayal, Am I just to move forward, forgiving and forgetting and absorbing all of the fallout from what somebody else did to me? The answer to that is not necessarily. And that is why we need to think about the difference between forgiveness and pardon. Forgiveness is one thing, pardon is another thing. We forgive criminals who do horrible things, but we still want to see justice in relationship to that. And while you and I must be very careful here to not ever seek revenge, thus showing that we've not really forgiven somebody, we must at the same time think about processing the matter of justice in our hearts so that we can move beyond, right, having been wounded by betrayal. And I think some people get hung up here. We're to forgive, but we still have deep feelings about things. And so we have to think about, well, how can I process this idea of justice? I'm not saying we have to think about how am I going to meet justice out on you or get you back. That is not forgiveness. But it is saying, well, then how can I now work through this in my life to really get on the other side of this? And so we must secondly remember the surety of justice. When you and I have been wounded by betrayal, and we choose to forgive, which we are called to do, and we start processing this idea of justice and our, our feelings that, that justice needs to be, be served, something needs to happen here. Well, what I must first do in my life is I must trust the ultimate justice of God because things may not ever work out here in a way that I feel necessarily satisfactory that it all got tied up the way that it should have. There's a mysteriousness to suffering in this life, and sometimes things are messy in this life. And it doesn't all get sorted out sometimes until we get on the other side. 
And so I must, as a matter of processing this feeling of justice, I must trust that God's ultimate justice will be done ultimately. But again, sometimes they will not seemingly work out in time. And so we have to process this by resting in his ultimate justice. You remember in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read those verses about all the Christians abandoning Paul. And he said, may it not be held against them. But he mentions another man here. And we don't know if it was betrayal or how this guy hurt Paul. I think he was instrumental in Paul getting arrested. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 14, he said, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. And then he says, the Lord will repay him for what he has done. I preached a message once in seminary chapel to people going into the ministry. When Alexander wins, when you get creamed in life as a preacher, never happens to preachers, but once in a while, you may get creamed in life. Well, how are you going to deal with it? Well, we have to rest in the ultimate justice of God when all the loose ends don't get tied up. And we can, as a matter of faith, then forgive. One way we can process this idea of justice is we can forgive, and then we can put justice totally in God's hands. We must always live out the ethic that we find in Romans chapter 12 in how we deal with people who made themselves our enemies. In Romans 12, in verses 17 through 21, Paul says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so in this sense, we, in forgiveness, we give up the right to get even, and we trust God because God is better at justice than I am. God is better at dealing with things than I will ever be because when I try to handle I'm usually probably going to sin more and wound my heart more as I try to process the feelings that I have. So one way we can handle this idea of our feelings in relationship to being betrayed is that we put it totally in God's hands. We forgive, and you may have lost a ton of money because of something, and, but you may choose in that sense to say, I'm not going to seek anything out of this. As far as justice goes, I'm leaving it in the hands of God. That's one way to process it. We can also process it in another way, and that is as a Christian, I can make the decision as a matter of the gospel to forgive and to pardon. So, for example, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you remember they were dragging each other into court, and they were suing one another as believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, if any of you has a dispute with another... Do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? In verses 6 through 8, instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've already been completely defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? 
Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and your sisters. The idea here then is if I've been hurt as a Christian by another Christian, betrayed, I may choose to process the idea of justice of saying that I would rather be wronged than take this into a court of law before secular judges because I don't want the cause of Christ harmed around where I live. And so we don't want to harm the witness of the gospel. I remember counseling some men in another state some years ago who were in the same business. They had been partners. There was a non-compete clause. One of them built his business under the nose of the other one on the side. And eventually he left and moved just a mile down the road. And they had a non-compete clause that he would not ever practice within like a 10-mile radius of where the other person was. And I happened to be an interim pastor at a church where one of these men went to church and he came to me about trying to deal with this. And long story short, we tried to reach out to the other party who was a Sunday school teacher in another sister Baptist church and went through trying to deal with reconciliation, trying to deal with handling this justly and the other person never was going to respond in the right way. Their church wouldn't get on board. And so finally, I just said to this person, you know, you've got to make a decision. I know this is hard. What are you going to do? And he finally said, I'll just have to take the loss. I'm not going to take him into a secular court. I'm not going to harm the cause of the gospel. And he seemed to be okay with that once he processed it in that way. And so he had been betrayed, but he processed it by saying, I don't want to harm the gospel of Jesus. That's the second way you can handle these types of things. And then another way you can handle it is to uh, resort to remedy for how betrayal has harmed you. That is, you can seek justice at times to a degree. And so if you have a dispute with a non-believer, you can forgive, but you can seek redress in courts of law if, say, there is a business loss. I don't see that that's sinful. Or say if there is a divorce due to betrayal, And, you know, the grounds of divorce among believers is very narrow. Marital infidelity or being married to a non-believer who leaves you. We must forgive to not be paralyzed by the betrayal. But if it ends up in divorce, if you're a Christian and the other person says they're a Christian, you can go through steps of discipline with your church. We don't do this a lot. Because usually in those situations, one person will just, you know, pop up and leave and go somewhere else. But you can try it. If your brother sins against you, go to him in what? Private. If he doesn't hear you, take two or three more. And if he doesn't hear you, tell it to the church. And then if he won't hear the church, treat him as a what? What? Unbeliever. And so if the church declares that person an unbeliever and the church has the right to do that, then that person is an unbeliever and you are free then to pursue that justice, not in bitterness, but for things to be made right. Sometimes you may have children who have their mouths literally on the line if somebody has abandoned you so that you have to try to get some redress to feed your family. But again, this is not always easy to do. And if the person that leaves you and you both end up determining your church or you're both Christians, there's been infidelity, there's been a problem, this isn't going to work out, 
there's a biblical basis, then perhaps you can call in your pastors to give counsel in situations. And perhaps then work to go to Christian attorneys who will work this out in mediation so it doesn't go into secular courts and try to work through the need for justice and redress in that way. And again, I'm just painting with a very broad brush dealing with one example there. The point is that where betrayal is there, it leads to perhaps real loss. You've got to process it in relationship to the idea of justice and find healing and begin to move beyond it in your life. And then finally, if we're going to deal with the wound of a betrayal, we must remember the rest to be found in providence. To find healing from the wound of betrayal, we've got to rest in the providence of God. That is, we've got to trust His oversight in our lives and His wisdom to know what is best for us. Paul believed God was over his circumstances. In 2 Timothy 4, the church abandoned him. Alexander had done him great harm. He says about the church, may it not be held against them. But how do you see Paul trusting in the providence of God for his own life here? He knows he's about to have his head cut off, most likely. And he says, God is going to deliver me safely to the kingdom, right to the other side. But in the midst of all of that, Paul says, I fought a good fight. What does he say? I've finished my course. I have kept the faith. He talks about the crown that is there for him. And he talks about his life. He says, I see my life already being what poured out as a drink offering. That my, my death is going to be an offering unto the Lord. And so he, he trusted in God's providence that he was about to die, and that was the best thing in God's economy. Joseph saw his betrayal as leading to the salvation of many people, his nation being saved from famine. And so he was able to forgive and rebuild with his family. Jesus' death was one in which he trusted in the providence of the Father when he died. When he knelt there in the garden, he's been betrayed, and it's his time. His time is at hand. He says, nevertheless, not what my will, but what thy will be done. And the Bible says that his death was orchestrated by God down to the details and down to the time. And you remember the book of Acts and the early preaching of the life of the church in Acts 2? As Peter's preaching and talking about Jesus' death, he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. Who handed him over? Judas betrayed him. And he's responsible for what he did to Jesus. This man, though Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, right? And he's declared him the Messiah, the Lord, the God. He's the one that you are to put your trust in. God's providence was perfect. And so as we think about how we go through things in life, We've been betrayed. We've got to make that decision that I'm going to trust in God's providence. I don't know how things are always going to work out. They may not always work out where it all seems to be all tied up nicely, but I'm going to trust in his providence, and I'm not going to stop moving forward. 
And, you know, how we view things makes all the difference in the world and how we handle it. So regarding betrayal, we, we must walk in faith in the providence of God along a few lines. One, we must overall rest in his control and sovereignty over all things, over our lives, our circumstances. And how we view these, these things makes a difference in how we press through them. And we need to recall three things in seeking to view all of this rightly. Let me just give you three things on how to, be, how to view it rightly, even betrayal. One, as Rick Warren said, life is a test. And you and I must remember this is not heaven, and it never will be until Christ comes, and there's the new heaven and new earth. And so life is a test. God will never tempt any of us to sin, but God all through the Bible is testing his people. You remember in 2 Chronicles 32, 31, the Babylonians came to hear about what God had done miraculously to deliver the Jews, and Hezekiah, the king, was there. And it says God pulled away from him, basically, to test what was in his heart. I remember God tested Abraham's faith. He tested him when he said to him, go, what, kill your son, your only son. He tested him. He tests the Israelites. He tests all the way through. He tests us as well. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 6 and 7, Peter says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, tests. And these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. You see, if we were never tried in life, we might think we had real faith. But it is only by the trials in life where we come to see Am I really trusting in the Lord, or am I trusting about something in me or someone else or something in this life? And so trials, like being betrayed, for which people who betray us are responsible when they sin against us, nevertheless, as the trial, they reveal if we're truly trusting in God. And we're rewarded by how we handle trials in this life. Two, God has so ordered things in a fallen world that some aspects of suffering are good and beneficial. Do you believe that? Our culture does not believe that. Our culture deals with troubles and suffering differently than Christians dealt with it in the past. And we're trying to deal with it like the culture. Our culture thinks that the main point in life is to be healthy, to have our needs met, to have an unproblematic life. And so when problems begin to come and there's emotional upheaval, our culture anesthetizes it through drugs or by diversion or by avoidance. But biblically, suffering is used by God in a positive way if we can learn to trust him and wait to see it. James Davies, in his book, The Importance of Suffering, he says that paradoxically then the happy life is not achieved through directly seeking happiness or through avoiding suffering at all costs, but through our being willing to confront, experience, and learn from our suffering when, wherever it may, uh, whenever it may arise. Thus life, listen, is designed here by God in this fallen world. It is a test, and it is designed to have some disequilibrium in it so that we will be tested to see if my faith is real, and so that God can show us more of himself and his faithfulness and his glory and so that he can grow me in my walk with him. And that's the third thing about this is that 
God, when he allows us to go through things like betrayal, that's pro- a part of the process of that verse that's my favorite verse of our being made new. Someone once wrote that, what if in the future we come to see that just as Jesus could not have displayed such glory and love any other way except through his suffering, that we would not be able to experience transcendent glory, joy, and love any other way except by going through a world of suffering. That is, going through this world, walking with the Lord in trust, working through the hardships and the heartaches of life, prepares us for an even greater glory. Heaven will not be as sweet, to summarize it, if we do not go through the things that we have to go through here. Tim Keller, in his book on suffering and evil, shares true stories. One is about a Christian woman named Emily. Emily was married to a Christian man. They had four children. She remembered them talking about their covenant when they got married and that they would never break the covenant, right? But they had some friends who also had two children, and they vacationed sometimes together. Long story short, her husband left with the wife of the other family. And she confronted him about what was going on and said, you got to tell the children. And she thought when he would do that, it would uh, break him, but, but it didn't. He told the kids. They didn't understand. They left. They said, when will he be back? He said he wouldn't. They were crushed. She said, after eight weeks, my heart was still crushed. God, is this really your plan? How could this be your plan? I know you'll heal my heart. I know something good will come from this, but how and why this? She said, my children were suffering. How can you love them and cause such pain? After four months, she said, God is beginning to heal me in a way I'm not sure I want to be healed. I want to see justice, but it is not mine to inflict. I'm beginning to pray for him, not about him. I'm beginning to pray for his heart to be healed, for him to come back, not to me, but back to God. I need to move on without him for now and maybe forever, but I have to forgive him to get through the bitterness. She goes on to talk about the process. It has now been six months. My situation has gotten worse, yet I feel truly blessed. My husband's still gone, still with his girlfriend, told me they will be part of our kids' lives. I need to get used to it. She said, my kids are still dealing with the impact that their dad left. They're depressed, angry, confused. My oldest is questioning his faith. My house is up for sale, a short sale. I don't know where I'm going to go. But here's what she says. And yet in the midst of all this, I've come to know God on a different level, to see him work in a way I'd only heard about. To experience this is quite amazing. She says, I've never experienced any tragedy in my life, and this has been something that is awesome now because everything collapsed except I came to know him better. And she said, as I close in the midst of this horrible situation where my whole identity and where my family's been attacked, I see glimpses of what God is doing and how my life and our lives will be changed, and I get excited to see who I get to be at the end of all of this. Well, that's how you process betrayal. Forgiveness, trusting in God's providence, 
and continue to move forward and seeking him more fully and finding him truly to be real. And he will heal you and help you continue to move forward in your life. And I hope this maybe has helped some of you today. And again, I'm painting with a very broad brush. And as I said in the beginning of this series, if you think you need counsel, we'll help you get it. We provide it for free here if you need it.